Welcome to the North Cross Sermons Podcast. At North Cross, we believe Jesus changes everything. To learn more about us and our ministry, visit us at northcrossmn.org. And be sure to check out the episode description for notes and discussion questions. So before we get into the actual message today, the, the topic we're going to dig into is the topic of identity, which I know can be a loaded term and it can carry a lot of questions and challenges. On the one side, people might look at this topic of identity and how our culture handles it and they can just be like, it's ridiculous what's going on out there. And there can be people on the other side who look across and say, how can those people have no love or no heart for what's going on? So it can be a loaded topic. So I wanted, before we even get into it, just to share a couple of things that I will and won't be doing. My goal for this message is not to give you a guide for how to handle every situation you might be around. And the other thing about this message is I'm not going to get very specific into certain areas. Like we won't be talking about gender identity specifically because I don't want to get too distracted by things that our current culture is really focused on, but maybe in five years, it'll be a different thing. So rather, what I want to do is show a bigger picture of how our current culture really isn't all that different from what previous cultures and future cultures will guide us to. And the other thing I want to share is that when I say culture, I'm not just pointing to people out there. I'm pointing to the natural drift in my heart if I am not aligned with the grace and truth of God. So with those things said, identity. The the nature of identity is, is an important one. And the reason it's so important is because whatever you believe about who you are, shapes everything about the way you live. In fact, I've heard this phrase come up in several books by several different authors and public speakers, and I I tried to find the source for who said it first, but I can't find it. So if you can find it or, yeah, let me know if you know the original author. But they put it this way. Whenever it comes to a situation where you have to make a decision, this is what we all ask. What does a person like me do in a situation like this? So just an easy example is maybe you're walking through the grocery store and you find a $20 bill laying on the ground and you've got some decisions to make in that moment. Decision number one is you probably look around to see if anyone is watching and decision two is what you do with it. And what you'll ask yourself is what does a person like me do in a situation like this? Or a different scenario, you're out in public and you're walking by someone and it's just the two of you and so you have to decide, will I look them in the eyes and smile at them or will I keep my head down? Now, if you've told yourself throughout your life that you're an introvert, you're not a people person, a person like you in a situation like that will probably keep their head down and just mind your own business. But if you believe you're an extrovert and you need other people to be happy, you will look them in the eye and you'll have a new best friend. What does a person like you do in a situation like this? Whatever you believe about who you are shapes so much about the way you personally navigate this world. So the foundational question we all wrestle with is this, who am I? And I could ask you, who are you? Depending on the context of who asks you and where it is, 
You might give different answers. At the beginning of the service, I introduced myself as Matt. I'm a pastor. Um, if someone asks you, well, who are you? you? You might give different answers. In fact, culture throughout the millennia has invited us to answer this question in different ways. Um, for a long time, the way that culture taught people to answer the question of who you are was based on your family. They would ask, well, who is your family? And if we know who your family is, then we'll know who you are. Um, ancient societies had, maybe even in some places in the world today, um, they have this thing called the caste system, where if you're born a slave, that's just who you are. In more modern times, if you're born a celebrity, that's just who you are. In fact, some celebrity families have their own shows just because that's the family they were born in. So that's a way that some people have found identity. That's how culture has taught us. Um, another way that's more recent is they ask this question, well, who are you like? Are you the athletic type? Then you belong with the athletic group. You're an athlete. Are you a musician? Well, you're more of a creative type. You're, a, you're creative. Um, are you a video gamer? Aren't we all? <laughs> but the question is, well, who are you like? And this, oh, man, this happens in, in middle school, and we just try to find out, well, who am, who am I? Depends on who I am like. And so you find your group. You find where you belong. And now, the, the, where I think culture has taken us today is very similar to this, but it's just one step more. It's not just who are you like, but who do you want to be like? And whatever you want to be like, that's who you are. And so what culture is inviting us to do is to search your heart. Search whatever's inside of you, your desires, your ambitions, your feelings, your preferences. And then after you do an inventory of all of that, then you will know who you are. And this might seem like a new earth-shattering thing, but really this is what culture has been teaching us all along, that our identity is discovered or determined through comparison of other people. How you compare to others determines who you are. So what we see today is not out of the ordinary. It's just a different twist on an old direction. And isn't it interesting that God actually gives us an opposite direction with this? Instead of saying, well, determine who you are, look at the people around you, God originally, in the beginning, said that when he created mankind, there was only one thing they were like, him. We were created in the image of God, in God's likeness. So that to, 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 to know who we were required that we look up to him in comparison to him, not comparison to other people. So here we see where there are two different paths we can take. To discover who you are, you can do that by looking in comparison to others. You can find some sort of identity that way. But God, looking up to him, offers us something different. And what we want to do today is really understand what culture is inviting us to do and how that is so different from what God invites us to do. Number one, what culture is inviting us to do is to say, follow your heart to determine who you are. Follow your heart to discover who you are. And if you discover that maybe you are not who you thought you were, you can become who you want to be. So should you follow your heart? And by heart, we mean desires, motivations, hopes, preferences. It's the invisible part of you that comes from inside. Should you follow that? 
what I want to do is look at Psalm 139, because I think in this psalm, more than any other, as the psalm was being written, the author was wrestling with this very question. Who am I? And how do I find the answer to who I am? And so as the psalmist is searching his own heart and also contemplating the identity of God himself, he finds a very comforting truth. So today we're going to look at what your heart is all about, what your heart will lead you to. And we're going to see some cautions that God brings up about your heart. Cautions he, he talked about 3,000 years ago, well before culture had ever brought us to this place. So here's where we'll begin. Psalm 139, verse 1, where the psalmist says, You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. This right away is this undeniably amazing thing that God knows you. And the word know means he, he knows you thoroughly. There's this intimate knowledge that he has of you, every detail. And the psalmist is about to spell out this knowledge that God has. But as, before we get into it, just picture this. How much do you know you? How well do you know you? Isn't it true that sometimes other people bring up things about you that you weren't even aware of? Hey, did you know that you do this weird thing whenever you get defensive? Hey, did you know that you kind of do this thing with your hands and you, twir- you know, we do these things and we have no idea that we do them and we also don't know why we do them. But did you know that God knows you? And if we don't even understand our little quirks that we do, do we really understand who we are? So, you have searched me, O Lord. You know me. Here's how well he knows me. I know, you know, Lord, when I sit and when I rise. So my daily, everyday life is something that you know about me. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Sometimes we, have, we need a therapist to help us work through our thoughts and just begin to understand them. But God doesn't even need to ask us any questions. From afar, he can perceive them. The word perceive means to winnow. And I had to look up what winnow means. Winnow means that you've got your grain and you're throwing it up in the air so that the chaff separates from the good stuff. God sees every little detail of your thoughts and he knows where they're going before you do. You discern my going out and my lying down. Um, the, kind of the funny way I thought of that this week is that God knows what motivates you to get up out of bed And he also knows when you need a nap. He discerns that. He knows your rhythms. And finally, he says, you are familiar with all of my ways. To the point where before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. This is incredible that God has such thorough knowledge about us. But it also raises the question, what does he do with that knowledge? Because if an enemy knew When you get up and when you go to bed, that's not good. And so the psalmist continues, this is good news. You hem me in. The word hem me in is, uh, it almost sounds like a Dodge car, but it's not a Dodge car. It's not a hemi. Um, Hem me in is a reference to a word for siege. Like when you siege a city, you surround it so that there's no way in, no way out. But this is the positive side of that. God is surrounding me. 
behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. You do not strike me with a fist. You lay your hand on me to protect me, to guide me. Now, this is incredible to see that this kind of all-knowing God, knowing everything about you, would choose to love you. And so the psalmist continues, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I don't even know me the way he knows me. But then him knowing me, he still decides to love me. This is too big for me to even understand why God would do that, why the God of the universe would make such a big deal about me. And here's where God is leading us. If you're looking for someone to help you discover or determine who you are, where should you turn? You could turn to your heart and you could analyze its desires and its motivations. Or you could turn to God who knows the very cause of those desires and motivations, who knows you better than you know yourself. And God wants to be that kind of a God that you go to as you search for who you are. And then to counter the alternative, when it comes to your heart, God does give a word of caution, more than one, but we'll just look at one. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. And who can understand it? Then God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I examine the mind. I know what's in you. So above all things, the heart is deceitful. And just on a secular level, we all understand this because when it comes to your heart, it has ups and downs. And if you follow its desires at, any, at every moment, it'll conflict with itself. Like for me, I know in the morning, I'm very disciplined when it comes to my diet. Like I can have a very strict breakfast, lunch, good to go. When it comes to six, seven, eight o'clock at night, my heart is telling me that the Doritos look really good. And I just want to consume calories. And my heart is telling me conflicting things. It's deceitful. And even much more on a spiritual level. Because it'll say, you should follow your desires. But God, from his perspective, know that those desires lead to a place that you don't want to be. The heart is deceitful above all things. So what, we've, what we learn as we go through Psalm 139 and see what God directs for us is that our heart, your heart, is not a leader to be followed. That's not why God gave you your, your desires, your, your, your emotion. It's, it's not a leader to be followed. But we have to be careful that we don't turn it into a villain at the same time. Because as we go on in Psalm 139, God gives us the positive of what this heart is for. So he goes on, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Um, so the, the first part of the psalm was talking about who I am and now it's talking about where God is. And just as you think about your life, think about the many places you have gone. Um, he's gonna talk about geography in just a moment, but think beyond that. Think about the ups and downs, the journey that your life has taken you on, the places you've gone. And now listen to how the psalmist puts this into words. He says, if I go up to the heavens, elevation-wise, you are there. 
If I make my bed in the depths, that word depths can be a little tricky. It's, it's the word Sheol, which could mean like a low place. It could mean even the grave. It could be whatever happens after this life. And then it says, you are there. The Hebrew is like, you're there. It's, it's, it, Hebrew doesn't have exclamation marks, but it does have certain phrases that it uses to exclaim things. So it's like, wait a minute, you're there? Whether I go up or down, you're there. And then he goes on. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and just help me, which direction does the sun rise from? East, thank you. If, if I, so if, if I rise on the wings of the dawn in the east, if I settle on the far side of the sea... And in the Middle East, the sea is west. So whether I go east, west, in a very poetic way, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. No matter where I go in this creation, you are there. But it's not just geography. He says, even when I go to a dark place, you're there too. He goes on. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Even the darkness will not be dark to you, Lord. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And here's where if we were sitting down, I would ask you, what's one of the darker places you've been? So dark that even the things that normally brought joy were just dull. The things that usually taste good just gave you no appetite. Life had no light to it anymore. And the psalmist says, even when I get to that place, my darkness is nothing to you because my darkness is like light. Because my God brings joy and hope and peace even when my heart is confused. And so here's where we get something important when it comes to how God views your heart and how he wants you to treat it. It is not a leader to be followed. But at the same time, it's not something that God wants to attack. Philippians 4, 7, New Testament, the peace of God, and you could spend just a week thinking about these next few words, which transcends all understanding. So we understand like a peaceful day at the beach or at the lake, you know, peaceful water. We understand peace in the house where Kids are not too loud. We understand what peace looks like, but there's a peace beyond understanding where you have a peace beyond this life. And God says, this peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace that Jesus established for you guards your heart. So your heart is not a leader. It is something to be guarded And God wants to guard it. So number three, your heart is not an enemy to be hated. It's something that God, with his peace, wants to guard and guide. Now, as you put this all together, we just want to cover both extremes. So yeah, don't follow your heart. But at the other hand, don't treat it like an enemy. Like you have to uh, abuse yourself or or deny yourself in some daily way that uh, just makes yourself suffer. But there's an important nuance to this also when it comes to the, the, that your heart is not an enemy. And that's brought, up, brought out in this next part when we look at what God really created us to be. Um, the psalm goes on, 139 verse 13. You created my inmost being. 
The word created is not the word in Genesis 1 where God created the heavens and the earth. It's the word used in Genesis 4 when Eve gave birth to her first son. She brought forth a son. It's also the word used whenever there's a sale or a purchase. When a price has to be paid to restore property, that's what this word is used for. So God brought forth, he created my inmost being. And if you, have, if you have a Bible that you like to take notes on, you can underline that word, those words, inmost being, because in the Hebrew, it's lit- it literally means kidneys. Yeah, it's true. God formed your kidneys. Now, in a poetic way, he's referring to this as your inner being. And so that's why it's translated that way. It's kind of like how we refer to the word heart. You've got a big heart. Um, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. Are you talking poetically or medically? So someone has a big heart, you know, that can mean two different things. Well, God created my inmost being, the parts of me that are beyond my organs, my being, what makes me, me, he created that. You knit me together in my mother's womb. We understand how the science and the biology work, but the psalmist acknowledges life began with God. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What if you told yourself that every day instead of the negative self-talk that tends to overwhelm our minds? I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. God doesn't make junk. You are not an accident. You're not just some mystery thrown into the universe. God made you. He created you, formed your body, formed your inner being. And then in this next part, he shows us why he does that. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Kind of a play on words, secret and hidden. Nothing is hidden from him. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. God had a plan. He had a purpose. And it's not just that he gave you the potential. Hey, go out there and let's see what you can make of this life. But rather, here's the incredible thing that we'll end with this verse, uh, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, this is one of the things that I'll never understand about God's perspective of things. But before you were even born, God had this book, not a literal book, but he had this book where your life was written. The plan was made. And just like an author, as they write a book, they're very careful to determine what kind of character they need for a certain detail. So God created you the way he intended. Not to write your book but because he had a story already written with you in mind. Another place we see this is Ephesians chapter one. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Sonship means you have an inheritance in heaven. This is who you are. And I wish, I wish every day I could live like that. Don't you? 
being so confident in who I am because God created me, he formed me, he has a purpose for me. But instead, isn't it kind of silly that even a pastor would would set aside this identity from God and instead say, I'm going to determine who I am by how many people are pleased with me. That is a poor substitution. It reminds me of how musical instruments work. So the guitar I had up here is probably blended into the background because we have instruments up here. But this, this guitar is unique. It's special but not in a good way. Uh, This guitar, I've had it for a number of years, and it was just a cheap thing I got secondhand off of Craigslist. And it's made it for, uh, yeah, we've moved it to a few houses, and so it's kind of beat up. And what I did yesterday is I, I, I perfectly tuned this guitar. I tuned it using the piano that's in our house. The problem with the piano in our house is that the piano has not been tuned in at least a decade. And do you know what happens with pianos when you don't tune them? Yeah. And do you know which way the pitch goes, like tone-wise? Does it go up or down when you don't tune it? It always goes down because there's so much tension on the strings, they just naturally want to relax. And so our, our piano at home is a good three or four notes flat. And so you, you might have seen this guitar up here and you said, oh, cool, one of the worship leaders is going to be playing this guitar for the songs. And I'll tell you what, if I picked up this, ooh, picked up this, I'm not going to pick it up. If I, I know when God's sending me a message. If I were to pick this up and try to play it, I could have the right, like, chords, but I would not fit in with the song that's being played in this place. Now, I could find a bunch of other people that are all tuned down the same way I am, and we could sing, we could play songs together, we could have a great time, but if I want to play in this place and give God honor and glory through worship, this guitar would not do the job. Now, you might be thinking, why don't you just tune your piano? Well, the thing with my piano is that it's so old that I'm, I fear if we would try to tune it, the tension of, of making those strings tighter would probably break it. And that's the tension you and I will feel in this life too. As much as I want to be tuned to God in every way, to be truly tuned with the heart I was born with would wreck it. It would destroy it. But at the same time, we have this tension. Well, how do I live in a way that's honoring and pleasing to God? And God has a solution. He promised it in Ezekiel and he fulfilled it in Jesus. He said, I will give you a new heart put a new spirit in you, a new identity along with a new heart. And I will remove from you your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. And so when Jesus was walking on this earth, he felt the tension. The tension of following his father's will, which would mean his suffering and his death. And he said, Father, if there's another way to tune this song so it doesn't include my death, could we do that? but don't tune down to me. Your will be done. And when he gave his life on the cross, an amazing substitution took place where your heart of stone and sin was put on Jesus along with all of its shame and embarrassment and consequences. And he gave you a heart that's alive. The power of the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is now alive in you. 
If there's any doubt about that, you can look back to the day of your baptism and say, that's when God washed me clean of my sins and he made a new identity and a new spirit come to life in me. I'm a child of God, washed, redeemed by Christ himself. So your heart is not a leader to be followed. It's not an enemy to be hated. Number four, your heart is an instrument to be tuned a new instrument that God has given you, something that's a lot better than this, an instrument that he can tune to be in harmony with his truth. And I know the temptation for me is when when it's been a while since I've been tuned by God's truth or God's grace, I easily get into this place of my desires, my wants, my old heart. And it's then that I have to confess my sin and say, God, Thank you that you don't tune down to me. Thank you that you give me the grace and truth to tune me up to you, to put me in harmony with your story. And I thank God that he doesn't forfeit me to the song that I could write, but he brings me to one that's much better, full of purpose, that all revolves around the love and grace that Jesus came to give. So, who are you? Who are you? Your father in heaven knows you. His goal is to guard and guide you. And throughout this life, we, the church, will be tuned to him. And the way we navigate culture is not by demanding that culture tune itself so that it sounds good to us. But like we said last week, our goal is to lead people to Jesus who changes the heart changes the identity. So we'll pick it up there next week as we continue to learn what it means to navigate culture in a way that shows the kind of truth and grace that Jesus gave to us. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for an opportunity to sit back, to, to, to think about that the challenges that we face. And it's easy to point to culture as maybe an enemy that we have to figure out and navigate around. But wow, the the real challenge, the, the real thing that we face is on the inside. We all naturally gravitate away from you towards our own desires, our way of thinking, our story, our song. And sometimes we even get angry at you, Father, when you don't tune down to us. But I thank you that you don't tune down. You have called us up and given us a new heart. So would you give us the wisdom and discernment to know how to navigate that in our culture? To know how to navigate when when culture is at a different frequency than we are. To not lash out in anger or try to legislate things so that it sounds good to us, but rather to lead people to Jesus who changes everything. It's in his name we pray. Amen.